Last week we jumped to Acts chapter 8 for our sermon text, but before we do that, what you need to know is at this point in the movement of the gospel and the spread of Christianity, Christians are being met with massive persecution. Christians are being persecuted. In Acts chapter 6, we read about the stoning of Stephen, and we read and know explicitly and implicitly about other martyrs for the Christian faith as the gospel continued to spread. And as that happened, it's a curious thing also happened. In the midst of persecution, there continued to be significant progress. In fact, this is somewhat of a paradox that exists always. When there is persecution of the gospel, when there is persecution of Christians, there is significant progress of the gospel in the midst of persecution. Speaking of persecution, you maybe have followed over the last months and then particularly this weekend the release of Andrew Brunson, who happens to be an evangelical Presbyterian minister from North Carolina who has been in a Turkish prison for over two years for proclaiming the gospel. He was indicted as a terrorist, which is absolutely false. He's actually pastored and ministered in Turkey for over two decades at a church aptly named Resurrection. And he was released this weekend to come back home. And he was commented and said, he, he, he was quoted in saying, I was held for one reason to suffer in the name of Jesus. For over two years in a Turkish prison, suffering for the name of Jesus, persecuted for the belief that you and I hold on a daily basis with oftentimes little to no consequence. In fact, right now in the world at large, on a daily basis, get this, on a daily basis, over 215 million Christians live in places where it is illegal and hostile to embrace and proclaim the gospel. That means that one out of every 12 Christians lives in a place where Christianity is unaccepted. Not unaccepted in a, as in a sense of doubted, but unaccepted in a sense of persecuted. One in 12 Christians. In fact, specifically in Africa, which will be very poignant for our message today, there have been more Christians persecuted to the tune of over 2 million in the last century, not counting the potentially millions of Christians that have been victims of various civil war and genocide throughout Africa. Over 2 million African Christians over the last century have been put to death. That's more than the first 19 centuries of martyrs combined. Yet in the midst of this persecution, the gospel progresses. And today in Acts chapter 8, we get to hear another word, another narrative, another story about the progress of the gospel, which actually does not entail persecution, but persecution is the context. Persecution precedes our passage today in Acts chapter 8 as we get to hear further 
about the progress of the gospel. Stand with me, if you will, to honor the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep. He was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that you, you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We don't read poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion and medicine, law, business, engineering. These are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, O me, O life, of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O me, O life, answer, that you are here, that life exists, and identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse, what will your verse be? Professor John Keating, played by Robin Williams in the fantastic film from 1989, Dead Poets Society. Don't know if you've seen it or not. If if you have not, I would encourage you to see it. John Keating is a professor in a boys' boarding school that is alive with passion 
in life. That is encouraging these boys that he is teaching to make their lives extraordinary. To seize the day. Carpe diem. He brings in people like Whitman and other poets that they are not naturally akin to. And inspires them to live their lives in a poetic way. In which they can contribute a verse. This morning we get to look at a story of the gospel. In which Philip in Acts 8 contributes a verse. As we see Philip the evangelist in Acts 8 contributing a verse to the poetry of the gospel, surely we too must see for ourselves this morning the inspiration and the opportunity to contribute a verse to the poetry of the gospel. I had an opportunity to hear about people contributing verses to the poetry of the gospel. Just two weeks ago at a church planting conference in Florida, we gathered a group of us with a group of church planters throughout the United Kingdom, England and Scotland. Fifteen of them were there that are a part of a movement called the United Kingdom Partnership that are connected to Redeemer New York city-to-city church planting global movement. And it was fantastic to hear these men and their passion for the gospel and what has unfortunately become a very desolate place and land for the gospel. Arguably, no place is more dark with regard to adherence to the gospel than Western Europe. A mere 8% of people throughout the United Kingdom profess Christ as their Savior and believe the Bible. It's not always been like this. Yet there's great need for the gospel. And so it was fascinating to hear these men in their churches and their passion for church planting throughout the United Kingdom in places like London, which is one of the most diverse cities in the world. Talking to one church planter there who's actually South African. His name is Kruger de Kroc. Pastors in Center City, London. And he said where their church meets within a one mile radius around where their church meets, there are 27 different ethnic communities just within one mile of center city London. And presumably none of those communities embrace the gospel. And then to hear similar things about Scotland, which has such a rich heritage for the gospel and even specifically a rich heritage for a reformed perspective on the gospel. To hear in a place now, to hear these Scottish pastors say, it's not so much that people are antagonistic to the gospel, it's just that people have no idea what the gospel is at all. Christianity in Scotland essentially is utterly irrelevant. And so you've got these churches and these people passionate, not only about pastoring their churches, but planting other churches. When these churches get to 100, 150, which is big in the United Kingdom for an evangelical church, guess what they do? Plant other churches. They're contributing a verse to the progress of the gospel. And once again, in Acts chapter 8, we see Philip contributing a verse to the poetry of of the gospel. And the main overarching thing that I want us to see from Acts chapter 8 this morning is simple. God seeks the lost. God, in his providence, 
with his heart for mission in the world, seeks the lost. Do we? Do we see God's heart for the nations? To see God's plan for every tribe, tongue, and nation to profess that he is the Lord. Do we see his heart? Do we see his passion? Do we know that God seeks the lost? And do we join with him in doing so? Be easy for me, you might say, to speak this message. After all, it's my job, right? My vocation is a minister of the gospel. Well, what you need to hear is administering and ministering and proclaiming and sharing the gospel has nothing to do with a paid vocation. It has everything to do with being a follower of Christ. There is no such thing as full-time Christian ministry. There is no such thing as full-time Christian service. I understand when people mention that to me, but I reject the notion because every follower of Christ is in full-time Christian ministry. Every follower of Christ is called to full-time Christian service. Now, it might not be in preaching like I do. It might not even be in explicitly leading a study or discipleship. But you're called to advance the gospel in your home. You're called to advance the gospel in your place of work. You're called to advance the gospel in your relationships. You're called to advance the gospel implicitly and explicitly. You're called to preach the gospel at all times... And if necessary, which it is necessary, use words. God is calling us to follow Him. God is calling us out of our zones. God is calling us away from cultivating circles with people that are just like us. And He's calling us to embrace the universal appeal and diversity of the gospel, which reflects His heart, because He seeks the lost. And Philip understands this in Acts chapter 8. As we look in more specifics at how God seeks the lost, I want us to look at God's call. I want us to look at Philip's response. And then I want us to look at the fruit that this has in the life of this black African eunuch. By the way, as strange as that may sound, it's supposed to. All of a sudden in Acts 8, and I don't know if you caught it, as we're reading the story, and whether you're familiar with this story or not, it's as if things are going along just fine. Middle Eastern, Jewish, Israelites, and all of a sudden, Acts chapter 8, a black African eunuch shows up. It's amazing. God seeks the lost. Let's look at his call. Let's look at the response, and let's look at the fruit that we see First of all, God's call. He's the one that initiates. Did you catch this in the story that the Spirit or an angel of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord comes to Philip and speaks to him? Was he audibly speaking? I don't know. I do know that the text tells us that the Lord spoke to Philip. May or may not have been audible. I don't think it's normative. In fact, I know it's not normative for God to speak audibly. So we at least know that God spoke to Philip's mind and to his heart, if not literally to his ears. But God spoke this mission into being. God's call, first and foremost, 
is initiated by him. This was not Philip's idea. This was not the Ethiopian's idea. This was God's idea. This is God's mission. This is God's story. This is his purpose. This is him. There's an old hymn that says this very poetically. And it's written from not God's perspective, but our perspective, a human perspective. The hymn writer writes, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. It appears maybe in this story that Philip is seeking the Lord, or maybe the Ethiopian is seeking the Lord, but ultimately, first and foremost, what we must know is that God is the seeker. God seeks Philip, and God seeks this Ethiopian because God has a heart for mission. If you will, turn to the front of your bulletin and the reflection that I encourage you to look at at the beginning of the service if you didn't get an opportunity to do that, or if you just rejected my advice. I'll try to get you to look at it now. Christopher Wright is a fantastic missiologist and scholar that has done some excellent work on God's mission in the world with particular expertise in the Old Testament. Christopher Wright says this, Mission is not ours. Mission is God's. Certainly, the mission of God is the prior reality out of which flows any mission that we get involved in. Or as, or, as it has been nicely put, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for His church in the world, but that God has a church for His mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. God's mission. In a similar way, I like how John Piper says this, Mission exists. Because worship doesn't. Mission is actually not the ultimate goal of the church or God's people. Worship is, but because worship doesn't exist, because as a result of the fall, God is on mission and God is calling His people to be on mission. And oddly enough, He chooses to use us. Now we could question the effectiveness of His plan and His mission through obvious circumstances, particularly when we look in the mirror. But God, in His great delight and humor, I think, and sovereignty, has chosen to use us to spread His mission and to give His call. A verse before we move on to Philip's response to this call that I want to put before you is from Isaiah chapter 49. It's Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 and 6. And Isaiah 49, verse 6, is easily in the life of our church together in the top three verses that I've ever mentioned. We're only a year old. We've got plenty of time to go. But Isaiah 49, 6 is clearly in the top three greatest hits of verses that have been mentioned in the history of this church. And this is why. Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says... He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, and then this is verse 6, It is too light 
a thing that you should be my servant to raise up only the tribes of Israel and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Instead, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God is calling His people to mission. God is calling us to go. Philip responds to this call as we see in the text. God calls him to rise and to go. Side note, metaphorically speaking, God is always calling His people to rise and go. God is always calling His people either literally or figuratively away from home. Read the Scriptures. Look at how history unfolds. Look at people like Abraham and Joseph and Jesus and Paul and Peter. God is always calling His people. Therefore, God surely is calling you in principle to rise and to go away from that which is comfortable and to go towards others who need the gospel, to go to places, even as the text tells us literally and I think figuratively, this is a desert place. He's calling Philip to do this. And then in verse 27, if you want to turn your eyes to the text there, Philip, and he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was basically her finance manager. And once again, I just want to say again, if this sounds random, it is. Don't let the randomness be missed here. Don't let this not stand out to us. That all of a sudden, on the scene, in early first century Christianity, we have a black African eunuch who was most likely a Gentile, who for some reason had gone into Jerusalem, most likely scholars believe, though there of course is some ambiguity here, because he was a seeker to potentially participate in a festival or a conference, if you will that was exploring the gospel as he was seeking this, and as he was on his way home, God intersects his life with Philip's life as Philip responded to God's call. And Philip engaged, and Philip encouraged this Ethiopian, and Philip instructed this man as well. Did you catch that? This is a fantastic story. In many ways, when I was reading it out loud, I was just thinking to myself, just close in prayer. Just read the story and close in prayer. You probably wish that I had done that, maybe. But Philip engages this Ethiopian. And once again, God leads, God calls again. Did you catch this in the middle here in verse 29? Go over to his chariot. So Philip's you know, minding his own business. He says, go on this road leading to Gaza. There you will find somebody. Guess who you're going to find? A black African who's a eunuch, who's a finance manager for a queen riding in a chariot. That's who you're going to find. Oh, and by the way, when you find him, go join him in his chariot. Because you know what? I'm working in him through my word. And he's going to be reading the Bible. Black, African, most likely a Gentile, reading the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Arguably, one of the greatest texts in the entire scriptures. And he's reading it aloud, seeking to understand it. And God says, Philip, go. Go next to him. 
And Philip starts to engage him and encourage him. And Philip challenges him. This is pretty amazing. Lovingly challenges him. Did you catch this? Hey, excuse me. Do you, do you understand what you're reading? And then the Ethiopian amazingly says, actually, no. Like, I don't even know who Isaiah is talking about. Is Isaiah talking about himself? Or is he talking about someone else? Scholars, consequently, would go on to argue this, and even to this day for thousands of years, who is being talked about in Isaiah 53. But Philip has the accurate interpretation when Philip says, oh, I know who Isaiah is talking about. His name is Jesus. You see, Philip not only responds to God, but Philip responds to the Ethiopian and starts to give us an amazing lesson in evangelism and outreach. There are times we've seen throughout the Scriptures where mass evangelism is done. We've even read them previous in the book of Acts. But here we see a very subtle, a very simple, a very relational, one-on-one engagement of evangelism. And I would actually say, for this day and time, in this particular country, in your life, this is a more normative method. This is a more normative and effective way to engage people with the gospel through relationship in a one-on-one respecting conversation and where you can encourage and where you can challenge and where you can show courage by engaging in the first place and then where you can also instruct. From a point of application, it seems to beg the question, do others ask us what things of the gospel mean? which of course would be given the reality that we are engaged with people that don't believe the gospel. So that might just be a starting place. If we want to see this as somewhat of a model for what it looks like to advance the gospel, to contribute a verse of the poetry of the gospel, what we have here is Philip engaging with someone that doesn't believe the gospel. And maybe it's too fundamental and too basic, but it seems like an appropriate question. Are you engaged with people that don't believe the gospel. And if you are, do we exhibit the courage that Philip does led by the Spirit to go near them and to encourage them, to ask and to challenge? And then furthermore, do they feel safe enough through our relationship and through our presence, not being judgmental, condemning, or self-righteous, to actually ask us a question. And let me ask you this. If you are engaged with non-Christians, and I understand that that's an if, but it shouldn't be. So let's be positive at this point. When we engage with non-Christians, do those non-Christians feel comfortable and therefore led to ask you questions about your faith? And if the answer is no, then my question is, why not? Here, Philip engages with this black African, and he asks him a question about the Scripture that he's reading. Clearly, God's already working, right? And so Philip's got that confidence. Philip knows it's not ultimately up to him. It's God's call. It's God's mission. It's God's heart. Philip's just playing a part, contributing a small verse to the grand poetry of the gospel. And he asks him, what does this mean? And then here's another key point of application. Philip has an answer. 
Now, I want to be careful how I speak about this by way of application, uh, because the last thing I want to do is create an undue burden, while at the same time, I do want to present a challenge. And the challenge simply is this, if you're a Christian, and I understand that that's an if, I know everybody here is not a Christian, but if you're a Christian, the question is simply this, can you articulate the gospel? Can you walk through in an accurate and compelling way, not only your own story, which is super important, but can you walk through the Scriptures? Do you have a redemptive historical perspective? Do you understand this grand narrative of creation, fall, redemption, consummation? If you are a follower of Christ, we need to be able to do this. We don't need to have every answer to every question. However, what we see in Acts chapter 8 is not dissimilar to what we see in Luke 24 when Jesus Himself instructs followers on the road to Emmaus. He unfolds the grand narrative of the Scriptures. That's what I'm asking. Can we unfold before people in a compelling, accurate, and somewhat articulate way the story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. If not, I'm not here to shame you. I'm here to help you. I would love to talk to you about what it looks like to be able to talk to others in order to accurately and compellingly and respectfully instruct others in the truth of the gospel. It's going to be extremely difficult for the gospel to advance when biblical literacy among church-going Christians is on such a sharp decline. And so we should be challenged. We should be challenged to have our lives regularly intersecting and engaging with people not like us, specifically not like us with regard to a structure of belief, but also not only to have them in our lives but to be able to lovingly engage them in a way that is filled with respect and trust and honesty. And then furthermore, in a way in which if they have questions or when they have questions, we can help and offer answers. So we see that God has a heart for the God seeks the lost. We see His call through that. We see Philip's response to that. And then finally, we see the fruit of this call and response in the of this Ethiopian who actually embraces the gospel here in this story. Did you see this? Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began with the Scripture, and he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. (laughs) What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. But then he went on his way rejoicing. The fruit here is unbelievable. This Ethiopian gets it. He gets it so much that he wants to participate in the Christian practice of baptism. He wants to participate symbolically and spiritually in his own resurrection where he goes down and comes back up into life, or where he experiences the sprinkling and the pouring out of new life 
and the blood of the lamb upon his life. This Ethiopian knew of this practice and this Ethiopian wanted a part of this practice. And the result of this was joy. It was rejoicing. It was the fruit of the Spirit in this man's life. We don't know exactly why he went to Jerusalem, but we know what was going on when he came out of Jerusalem. But something else that I want us to think about in this story with regard to our own mission, because even with what we just did and some challenging and encouraging on my part to you, it's immediately a temptation to feel shame and guilt and to be driven by that with regard to gospel mission. But I want to offer another. Gospel mission presents the opportunity for joy in your life like nothing else. Clearly, the Ethiopian in the passage is rejoicing. What about Philip? What do you think this experience was like for Philip? I wonder if it was similar to you and I when we hear someone embrace the gospel for the first time and we think to ourselves, oh my God, this is really true. Especially if you're one who has grown up in the church and essentially you believe the gospel because you're supposed to. It's not that you don't really believe the gospel, but if you were to trace your narrative in your life, you could say, you know, I basically believe the gospel because I'm supposed to. My parents were Christians. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in the church. I grew this. But then, in some ways, if that's you, you of all people need to be intersecting in people's lives who aren't supposed to believe the gospel and to watch and to hear them believe the gospel. Because you know what it does? It strengthens your faith. This is why I think the dichotomy between discipleship and evangelism is so erroneous. Not to mention the fact that Jesus never uses either word nor makes that distinction in his ministry. But you do understand that evangelism is discipleship, right? You do understand that it would help you grow in your own faith and encourage your own heart in the gospel if and when you have to and get to articulate the gospel to a non-believer. Are you going to tell me that doesn't make you grow in your own faith? To have to answer doubts and skepticism and questions from those who don't believe? Is that not sanctifying for you and your belief? Is it not a joyous experience. It reminds me in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus sends out 72 to do mission. And it's an amazing passage. You can look at it later. It's almost as if Jesus is in the locker room at a whiteboard drawing up plays. And he's saying, all right, here's the deal. You're going to go out two by two. And when you go out two by two, you're going to go into these towns. And when you get to the towns, do this, do this, do that. And I'm going to send you with power and do this and do that. And then they come back and they're amazed. And they're like, Jesus, it worked. Like we ran it up the middle every time and scored and I'm demon submit to us in your name. And then you know what Jesus says in response to their amazing newsletter worthy ministry? Don't rejoice in this. Instead, rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What does that mean? When we are ministering the gospel like Philip to this Ethiopian... God is at least as interested in what he's doing in our life as he is in the lives of those to whom we minister. In many ways, this is how I can say it. So many of you, I bet, that are walking with Christ need energy and life and revival 
and renewal, here's an opportunity. Go in mission. Seek the lost. It's amazing how rejoicing and reviving that can be for our own soul. Philip goes on to do that, and then the Ethiopian goes on to do that as well, which is good news for the world of Christianity, because guess what? Some of the most historic and influential Christian thinkers and theologians like Cyprian and Tertullian and Augustine came out of you know where? Africa. Where did that start? With God's mission here with Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch. Even today, a century ago, there were only 9 million Christians living in Africa. Most were in Egypt and Ethiopia's ancient churches. By 1950, this number had tripled to about 30 million. Today, out of a population of around 1.2 billion, there are an estimated 582 million African Christians. You know what that means? One out of every four Christians in the world lives in Africa. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.